0: Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how that scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us, and so it's always recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. You can check our show notes to see where the movie is currently available. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, movie fans? So, this week, for our very first episode, we're going to talk about The Prestige. The Prestige tells the story of two rival stage magicians in Victorian-era London and their obsessive pursuits to gain superiority, no matter the cost. Directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman, The Prestige was released on October 20th, 2006. So,
1: Taylor, what was your first impression of this film? Oh, man. So, I think it was when this movie came out on... You know, that cable, uh, satellite service pay-per-view on Bell, and I I remember being sick one day and buying it and watching it and being so obsessed that I watched it, I think, two more times in that 24 hours (laughs) that I had it rented. I just couldn't believe that a movie had a twist like this, Um, and it just hit me at the perfect age, and it was one of the movies that, I don't know, definitely put me on the path of being a movie buff and movie lover. Well, I'm pretty envious of
0: that first experience because I, so it, this was at a time when I was in high school and someone I knew had just got in car and we made the most of it by always just going to see movies as much as we could because we lived in a small town outside of a larger city, couldn't watch any movies locally. So we just were watching movies all the time uh, over in Hamilton and Prestige was one of them in this run. It was alongside with like Casino Royale and some other really good movies at the time. Um, Right, that was a good year And I mean, The prestige really just blew my socks off And I would have loved to have been able to watch it a couple more times Like you were able to after the first time But I don't think I went back to see it in theaters And as we'll discuss, this is maybe one of the best examples For a rewarding second, third,
1: or 19th watch uh, In terms of movies Uh, But it was a great first experience to be sure Yeah, I totally agree, and I'm definitely jealous of your end of it, too, that you got to see it actually on a big screen, because I think if this movie went back to theaters or something like that, miraculously, I'd be in line. And uh, maybe with Christopher Nolan's status as a director, we could get that someday. I think it's certainly possible. People like to do those anniversary things. They did it with Dark Knight and
0: maybe even Interstellar, which is, I mean, you could definitely, if you can get Interstellar
1: back in theaters, I think you can get the Prestige in theaters. Anyway. (laughs) So, like Tim said, we're going to be doing one scene analysis per week. Try and give you the time code and avoid spoilers when possible, but this movie does contain a lot of interwoven plot, and just as a heads-up for this week, I guess, we will probably be diving into a lot of the major spoilers of the movie. But to get into the scene itself, the time code is 1327 into the movie to 1602, so it's about a a two-and-a-half-minute scene here. Uh, The scene itself features Hugh Jackman as Robert Angier, Christian Bale as Alfred Borden, Piper Parabo as Julia Angier, and Michael Caine as Cutter. Are you listening closely? The scene is set backstage following a successful but apparently boring show of Milton, a show magician that the quartet all work for. Borden largely drives a conversation regarding the lack of originality in Milton's show, while Angier questions Borden's morality and his bluntness on the subject. Cutter calls out Borden for using the incorrect nod on Julia during the act, and further arguments of professionalism, showmanship, and secrecy arise
0: yeah so this was a scene that we wanted to talk about because in my opinion and i think both of our opinions it's highly emblematic of one of the key achievements of this movie which is something that you could describe as like a density of plot or a density of theme even this scene is the first chronologically in the movie but doesn't occur first in the cut of the movie it is a flashback nested in like three other flashbacks. But the part that's really impressive of the scene is that almost every single line, if not every line, either refers to something that will happen or refers to something that will be revealed. Whether they are the major sort of twists and reveals later in the movie, or just simply other events. You can walk step by step through each line and no line has to stand on its own. Nothing is just serving the internal mechanics of the scene they're doing both that and giving you so much information about what else will be happening in the movie in a mix of red herrings and
1: Chekhov's guns and double entendres yeah it's amazing that in a movie that's two hours and I think two hours and ten minutes long or just it's just over two hours and ten I think that we get so much of this exposition and seemingly spoilers it's like borderline spoiler territory like 13 minutes into the movie here but yet as an audience we really choose to gloss over a lot of this information or at least we can't spend the amount of time we would like to focusing on some of what's been given to us in this scene uh at this point yet there's just a bombardment of information and it just works so well for misdirecting us uh, as we like kind of enter the bulk of yeah the movie.
0: and we will touch on shortly how that misdirection works and how that's um really a function of how the scene is produced but before then I do want to walk through just how impressive all that information is so this is where we get into spoilers because again as we mentioned before this movie is so tightly plotted and so dense in the way it uses information that to really explore any part of it in detail you kind of pull the whole sweater apart by following one thread um so please if you haven't seen this movie if we haven't talked it up enough yet pause this and watch the movie and then come back absolutely in the course of this scene they establish a number of events a number of key character traits Um, They show you what both the characters want. They show you that Borden is really just committed to doing something that's new, that's something that cannot be done by other people, something that shows his brilliance as a true magician. And Angier is more interested on the uh, presentation side. He sees it more as a career, and he's, of course, also a lot more engaged with his wife, who's in the scene. In terms of actual plot points and actual lines, throughout the course of this scene, which is... Two and a half minutes long, they set up and talk about events that include Piper Parabo's character Julia's death. They talk about the bullet catch, which is a key point in Angiers and Borden's coming rivalry. They establish Borden's ambition. They have him even hint towards the transported man, which is probably the key sort of magic trick that that propels the second half of the movie. And then they even drop lines that hint at the fact that Borden is a twin and uses his twin to establish and perform an unbeatable magic trick, the transported man. Uh, You get lines like the one from Cutter where he says, some nights you just don't get it. And this is a very, very slim reference to the fact that Borden and his twin are swapping out time and time again. They're sharing this life already. And something that you would never pick up, until the second, third, or or numerous watches later. And it's just astoundingly impressive that you can take every line in a scene and make it mean something else. You're, you're creating value in this movie that's going to pay out over so many subsequent watches. I, I really think it's an impressive thing, and I, I don't think you see it a lot outside of... I'd say the other person who kind of made this their shtick for a little while was Edgar Wright with his movies. They're really focused on a couple ideas
1: and a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of setups and payoffs right like that's really what this Mm -hmm. scene is kind of delivering it's just a matter of like i don't know how many times you've personally seen this but this is probably you know watching it for this podcast was probably my 11th and 12th times watching this movie or something like that so the fact that even watching it that many times even this time with subtitles on You still are just picking up some of this information because there's just so much of it. There's just no way you can grasp all of it at once. There's like a whole discussion I would like to have on why this scene works in that way, but let's. do you have any more to talk about for kind of the mechanics of what's being said in the dialogue?
0: Well, just to sort of make a final point that I feel like it's fairly common to understand that a given scene has its goal, and in this scene I'd say that goal is really just setting up who these people are. You want to know who they are at the beginning of their arcs, and any given screenwriter, any given director could pen and, and direct a scene where you achieve that. And a number of the lines maybe wouldn't have anything more to do than get you to the next line. And that wouldn't even make it a bad movie. It would probably operate really well mm-hmm. as a first-time viewing. But the fact that you can go this much further, you can fold this piece of paper onto itself that many times, that you can have everything mean something else... Is, uh, is is one of those reasons why why this is one of my favorite movies and, and why we picked this for the first one?
1: Yeah, totally agree. Like I've been saying, it, it almost like the, no matter how many times you watch this movie, the scene still has just so much to offer, and so many times where you're just like jaw drops because you if you're told this 13 minutes <laughs> in the movie and you're just and yet you still spend the, half the movie figuring out how the characters know what they know. Um, And a lot of, I think, how this works is a sense of misdirection, which is inherently part of the magic tricks that are also part of the narrative of the film, which is why this works as a meta-cinema example. But like several times throughout the movie, there's this line that comes up in relation to the magic tricks themselves that we as an audience don't really want to know. We want to be fooled. And I think that is a perfect statement for how this scene is kind of operating on a technical level. There's so many different pieces of information in the scene but also the way it's shot really enables this uh almost bombardment of information while not being able to pick up everything and focus on it all in one go so the scene was shot all handheld on shoulder mounts uh, with a complete 360 degree set so that basically allowed the cameraman to follow the action and basically over the course of many many takes they were able to piece the scene together but it really allowed the actors to dive into their characters, which is really notable. Like, as you said, it's an excellent exposition scene for all the characters. We really get a sense of who they are. Christopher Nolan and his DP, Wally Pfister, worked together to, like, make this set so uh, believable and then also let the actors just live and breathe the lines. So they were doing, you know, five lines, or five pages of dialogue at a time kind of thing. And all that really allowed this information to kind of escape naturally.
0: Yeah, like, I think one of the key things here is in order to not give any unnecessary weight to any of the lines that they're doing, it's never shot in a way that would highlight anything. Like I think that the opposite in the spectrum is like if you look back at like uh, like Hitchcock movies where you get that long zoom into right. like the gun in someone's hand or like the key that they just stole, something like that. The way this scene is presented is the polar opposite. Being shot on the shoulder, you kind of have this perspective of just being another person in the scene. It's very casual, it's very informal, it's very unstaged, right? It's not uh, like the way that they shoot the scenes that are on the stage where you have these sort of set um, uh, cameras that are either just panning or rolling um, with that
1: little natural shake that you get from the handheld shoulder mount. yeah, it's operating like there's nothing special to see here yet. And mm. as a movie audience, you have that expectation. You're not going to be given all this crucial information this quick into a movie, so it's kind of tricking you in that regard as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting thing to look into because I think a lot of analysis of, um, of which shots that directors choose and things like that often is about... What point of view are we giving the audience member? What are we telling them about the people in front of them? But this one very specifically serves the purpose of making you not worry about what you're hearing. You're just meeting these people and you're Mm -hmm. overlooking all the stuff that they talk about as being, you know, magician's jargon and stuff that you don't have to remember. And every single point of it is something that when you see it again, your brain's going to give you a little dose of something and say, remember, (laughs) like you already heard about that. You heard about the bullet catch. Julia just died because of the knot. They already talked about that. And then, you know, 12 rewatches later, you're going to realize that Borden's talking about his twin when he says no one else can do this. Or Cutter is inadvertently referring to Borden's twin when he's saying some nights you just don't get it. It's an amazing marriage of production and intent uh, in the screenplay.
1: Yeah, and just one last point I wanted to make about the way this scene was shot specifically. And like you mentioned Hitchcock, Hitchcock's really famous for not only his intentional zooms, but also his close-ups and close-ups on significant items, red herrings or Chekhov's guns, as we've already referred to some parts of the scene. But the dialogue does not function that way. You're not doing close-ups on any characters in this scene, so you're not really telling the audience that anything is particularly significant. Whereas literally in the scene right before this, you're getting close-ups of the tank and Cutter's axe. You're getting all these Mm -hmm. really clear-cut... Close-ups that are definitely suggestive of something, and we as an audience know that. And then you have this scene immediately after that's disguising all that by not giving you those close-ups. That so, once again, an example of Nolan clearly being aware of the tactics in play and choosing to misdirect.
0: Yeah, I mean, as as we've mentioned, there's a lot of discussion around this movie about how it's meta-cinematic, and there's so many different paths you could walk down in talking about that. But just the idea of understanding how your DP's choices and your director's choices can operate as a form of misdirection is a really sort of uh, interesting
1: meta take on this. So I wanted to touch on a couple of specific parts of the dialogue, too. Like, right at the beginning of the scene, Borden is just kind of... Uh, he's just fuming at the fact that they are working for this, uh, uh, according to him, second-rate magician. It should also be noted that this is probably the darker side of Borden's, like the darker twin of the two for uh, that make up Alfred Borden. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, this is the one that he's drinking in the scene. He doesn't drink a lot in the movie, but he does have a drink in his hand in this throughout this whole scene. Mm-hmm. And while he's kind of like rambling, he is quite angry. And it's if you want to break down the movie more, there's like the two parts of Borden, one is a little bit more angry than the other. Um, so this is clearly like the angrier one of the two. Um, I love the fact that the bullet catch is mentioned but also there's like the idea that like he brings up using a plant again and like it's I find that kind of funny because plants just keep backfiring on both of them throughout the movie and so Mm -hmm. that's just another point of them like being amateur magicians not fully seeing the big picture yet there's a lot of good stuff in that early rant of Borden's.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I would be remiss if I didn't point out that um, when we're talking about him talking about Milton, Milton is played by a real-life magician called Ricky Jay, who is by far one of the most interesting people I've ever heard of in my life. Um, There is a New Yorker profile on him. Uh, We'll link it in the show notes. Um, If you want sort of some extracurricular reading if you're a big fan of the prestige or uh, the illusionist as well because he also consulted on that um this. yeah ricky j influenced both those movies and he's also just not like i think the stereotype that you get about magicians he's not like uh david blaine or david copperfield <laughs> he's really his own thing it that's sort of a mix of um magic historian and like long-term payoff magician. There's some really cool stories about tricks that he's pulled off with friends in that profile. I would highly recommend it.
1: That's really interesting. I, I want to check that out myself, actually.
0: Well, you can check it out in the show notes. it <laughs> will <They'll> be there. <laughs> um, another point, if we want to move just slightly past this, because this scene is kind of married to the scene that comes right after it. Because um, at the end, um, sort of as the argument comes to a comes to a fever pitch, Cutter Uh, offers Angier and Borden the opportunity to work with a business fan that he knows and possibly get some stage time if they go see this other magician perform. The magician being Chung ling And Oh, uh, yes, this is
1: juicy information here, yeah.
0: Yeah, so one of the videos that Tay and I checked out in doing our research for this was one by a rather small YouTube channel called Proofreader. Again, check it out in the show notes, we'd highly recommend it. This guy does about an hour-long deep dive into the movie, scene by scene, and he clearly did really detailed, really in-depth research on what went on, and went so far as finding out that Chung Ling Su was a real magician, the, 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 uh, the Chinese magician that Borden and Njir go to see in the scene following the one that we picked for this episode. Uh, he, he was a real magician, and he did do the act that you see in the movie. He with was, the goldfish,
1: right? Yeah,
0: yeah. He was also a white man who sort of just took advantage of the assumptions that people were making about Asian people at the time and their association with mysticism and things like that. So, right. like almost anything, when you look back in history, it has a bit of a bummer to it as well. Um, but there's a really interesting story there about... Chung Ling Su and the rivalry he had with another magician um, that culminated in a bullet catch. So uh, some right. very direct parallels to this movie from that.
1: Right. Yeah. So there, there are so many things that cl- I'm assuming Jonathan Nolan, Chris Nolan took from the Chung Ling Su story and kind of just incorporate elements sprinkled throughout the Prestige. Really impressive information. Once again, that proofreader video was very was very informative, and that guy really did his research. So we're trusting him on this one, but that was uh, that was really insightful stuff, and I thought that added so much context because there's, you know, Borden is also like really showing a lot of his cards in this. Like I said, kind of probably drunken rant that he's doing at the beginning of the scene. He says, you know, things like a real magician tries to invent something new that others will scratch their heads over, and then you have Cutter speaking about Cheng Ling Su saying that he really has what it takes so he's kind of overstating that even more so like tim said it's kind of connected to the following scene where borden is able to pick up the, the technique of chung ling su which is that his whole life is fraudulent and borden's obviously able to pick that up because he has the same idea for his trick in mind all just really juicy information about like how a borden's character like understands the world of magic but also like just how the nolan brothers kind of took this story and sprinkled it throughout the Prestige.
0: Yeah, it's really a, a masterful um, arrangement and dissemination of information um, in a really labyrinthine plot as well. Again, there are multiple nested flashbacks that occur in different points of view as you follow one person reading a journal in which the other guy is writing his journal, and then you find out later on that both the journals are have been written on purpose to mislead the other one. Right. It's something where it should be much more of a mess, I think. I like, as you said, props to Jonathan Nolan to be able to write a structure like this, and then go from that level down to the level of how you're giving information, and then Nolan and Fister taking all that information and taking that structure and figuring out how to film it in a way that also doesn't show their hand until the minute they want it revealed.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's. There's no impressive. reason. <laughs> there's there's so many ways this movie could have been a complete mess of information delivery. And it just isn't. It just operates on such a high functioning level of understanding exactly the information the audience needs, and maybe perhaps doesn't want to know at the sa- at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my my assumption would be
0: that the experience of working on Memento probably did a lot to help uh, Nolan figure out how to how to shoot and how to
1: present uh, a really confusing uh, uh, sort of structure and plot. Right, yeah. Memento is a really interesting case for that too, and I, like we don't need to dive fully on into Memento here, but yeah, you're right. Like it, it's once again all about the information he's delivering and how the audience is interpreting that in an unconventional narrative structure. And I think you're definitely right. You're definitely onto something there. Like Nolan has a fascination with time. We know that from all of his movies, but clearly there's something about uh, you know timelines and the delivery of information that he's interested in as well. There's an audience level that obviously connects cinematically to the prestigious well that Nolan is clearly like inciting as well here. Yeah, certainly. Um, and
0: I did I, I wanted to look into whether or not Jonathan Nolan was involved with the writing of memento, but uh, I think it's just credited right to Christopher Nolan. But again, this sort of um, exploration of more complicated structures is obviously something that comes back time and again in all of his non-Batman movies. Uh, you mm-hmm. have a lot of really sophisticated cross-cutting. You have, obviously, I mean, the the most surface-level thing is just playing with time and things like that. That, I think, kind of makes uh, Prestige a more demotable one to look into because it's really not playing with time. It's playing with perspective. It's playing with control of information. And, uh, I mean, just one of the many reasons why we chose this movie. Um, throughout the course of this podcast, we plan to always pick movies that um obviously the prestige did very well it was a very popular movie got nominated for a bunch of awards but in the scope of nolan's work it doesn't fit in like the other ones do he obviously after the prestige figured out how he would approach things and what he wanted to focus on and the prestige now stands as kind of an outlier um, which is what we kind of like to look at here this this is a win-win for anyone listening, because if somehow you hadn't seen this movie before, it's a great movie to watch the first time, and anyone else listening to this, you will be rewarded by watching it again. It's the easiest movie to recommend to watch, because it's good no matter when you have.
1: Yeah, I think it's so approachable on so many levels. Um, you, you can really dive in on multiple viewings of the film as well, which is not something... That you can say about very many movies, especially these days, where there's very basic plot structures in place. But this, this there's so much context that you can, and you can really look at the characters in so many ways as well. There's a couple other parts of this scene that maybe are worth looking into. You know, like I want to keep coming back to Borden and how he's like showing his full hand here. Almost, he's really not doing a good job of of hiding his secret in this scene, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Cutter kind of talks to him about or no sorry it's angier who says any trick can be duplicated and Mm -hmm. cutter is the first to correct him and say not if borden has actually found his masterpiece and the part that always like kind of (laughs) goes slips under michael Caine's cockney accent is that he says if he's prepared to do it and i i really like that like extra little line in there it's so hard to pick up but cutter does say it
0: well, yeah, that's one of two, in the universe of the movie, two lessons that keep coming back time and time again that they set up in this scene. One of them is that nothing great can, can be achieved without sacrifice. So him saying yes. under his breath, if he's prepared to do it, and then he tells them, go check out Chun-Ling Su, and you'll see what sacrifice looks like if, you, if you're if you smart enough to figure out what the sacrifice is, being that he's sacrificing his quality of life off the stage. Uh, the other lesson that they really impart here, again, by moving moving to the next scene with the Chung Ling Su performance, is the idea that there is value in being able to figure out how the other guy does his trick. Yes. Right? Like, I think, I think looking from the outside in, like, people not in The Magicians, like, obviously the audience, to an extent, acts like they want to know what's going on, but as this movie tells you over and over, you want to be fooled. The suggestion of... The ending of this scene and where it goes sets up the idea that, no, there's a lot of value in knowing how someone else does their trick, because you can either improve upon it, or as a magician, if you understand their secret, you can at least see why what they're doing is valuable and, and adaptive for your purposes.
1: Yeah, there's like the very practical part of the conversation. So after Borden kind of has says his piece, he walks out of the room, and Angier then asks Cutter immediately, like, where is he from? And Cutter kind of blows that question like, aside And kind of suggests that uh, it doesn't matter But then he, all, then, like, like you were just saying He then tells Angier that he hired Borden to find a, a different magician's trick mm-hmm. So th- you're right there, the, There's clearly this expository element of the scene That is trying to maybe hit, hit us over the heads with that information too There's enormous value in understanding and recognizing someone else's trick I think the idea of what they're aspiring to be also comes up in the scene. So you get a sense of who they are, but also what each of these men is trying to become as a magician. You have, you know, Borden saying that he has this trick up his sleeve that he's going to amaze people with, but also that he's he seemingly saying that he's not afraid to get his hands dirty while calling Milton the magician that they're working for, firstly, a showman, But then also suggesting that he won't get his hands dirty. And that's kind of interesting because that's really what Angier becomes after this point in the movie. He becomes a showman, uh, and they kind of, you know, they make reference to like the newspapers writing about him being London's greatest showman, not magician. And that's like just furthermore something that's brought up later in the movie. But Angier definitely becomes a showman who won't get his hands dirty until he does.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of forced upon him at a certain, yes. a certain point. This is, again, we're getting out of the the scene itself, but there's a lot going on about what sacrifice is and what sacrifice means. And for a while, after Julia died, Andier sort of holds that as his sacrifice, even though it was forced upon him. And you can, you can see when there are other conversations where Borden and him come to a head about sacrifice and who is sacrificed. And in those conversations, Andier still doesn't know what, what the core of Borden's secret is and what his sacrifice has been and you can see that Borden doesn't really especially depending on which twin he's talking to he doesn't really care the fact that Angier takes Julia's death as his sacrifice because it's something that happened outside of his control it wasn't a sacrifice he made he wasn't willing to get his hands dirty because in a scene not too long from here I think just after the Chung Ling Su scene they make it clear that Angier uh, comes from a wealthy family and he changed his name so as not to embarrass them so right. it's almost the idea is like he, he came to do magic because it was fun and because he likes being on stage and he likes seeing the audience's faces. He didn't come to it as a magician. He came to it as an entertainer and also seemingly as a flight of fancy. Before yes. Julia died, it was something to do um, other than being a rich person, other than being, you know, who was eventually really revealed to be a Lord Caldlow. Lord
1: yeah, that's, that was also a really interesting context that just continues to build up more and more every time I watch this movie is there's all these clues that Angier is this uh, quite wealthy man even before he started doing all of the stage shows and doing be, actually before he became a magician period uh, and just the fact that he kind of had to there's all these clues about how he changed his name and just became a different person to pursue this and not embarrass yes. his wealthy family
0: and, well, and on that note, just on this last rewatch for this podcast, something that occurred to me is, I don't know what we're supposed to believe. Does Angier put on an American accent to be Angier, or does he put on a British accent to be Caldwell?
1: I think it's a point. case to
0: be made for both, right? But yeah. like, I don't think he's putting on an American accent, because I don't think it's in his character at the beginning to be making that kind of sacrifice. I think he's naturally American, and That's he puts on point. the British accent late in the movie to more to better obscure his identity after his devil has died
1: and Borden has been framed for the murder I'd say that's a pretty good point just based on what we know about his character and and yeah. like if anything uh, if there's any takeaway from this scene we know a lot about the characters even if it's just all this subtextual stuff mm-hmm. uh, so just the last part of the scene I guess now that we've pretty much covered most of the dialogue that happens the last part point of dialogue maybe this is like going way too deep into this but I wanted to ask your thoughts because like you mentioned Tim every line of dialogue in this scene seems to matter and mean something so what is there any additional context to when Cutter tells Angier to watch his sight lines when kissing his wife's leg on stage there's like a very that really blunt line like watch your sight lines and I I really (laughs) like this line I just I was trying to dive into it and I didn't have anything
0: well um, I would have to rewatch it to be sure, but is it has it been made clear yet that they're married, or is that
1: how they tell us
0: that they're married without it being
1: more obvious? You know what? That that's probably honestly it. That's I think because he says your wife's leg, he doesn't say Julia's leg. So you're probably yeah, dead on right there.
0: It's probably yeah. It's probably a little bit of exposition to be you know a little bit more graceful than just like showing wedding rings or having them being making out after the show (laughs) um but it could but it also points towards the idea that uh at that time angier is not committed he's sloppy and he's having fun like he he's all hammy on stage right he gets up and he does a bow yeah yeah i like that point
1: of emphasis on his character too mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay yeah okay that's a bit more juicy for me then that's that, that's something I can take as a good answer. We,
0: you can read into it either way. It's, it's you know, on its very surface, it's purely functional. You got to know that they're married so that he has something to lose and, and does lose very quickly. But there's, there's obviously more it could tell you about his character as well.
1: Yeah, because it, it, to me, that's what really stood out. He, Cutter mentioned, like, if I can see you kiss your wife's leg, then so can the people on the ends of rows three and four. And I think mm-hmm. that's just, once again, exemplifying Angier's lack of dedication and awareness of the act itself, of being a magician. And mm-hmm. he's yet to fully learn what you have to sacrifice, including, like, maybe you can't kiss your wife's leg when you go up on stage mm-hmm. next time. You know, like, he's yet to understand that. It's also great, like, behind-the-scenes, within-the-movie sort of talk. Like, that
0: is the kind of thing you would expect Cutter to talk to them about. Yeah. Um, it's the right? good banker. And... and and yeah and it just suggests like this is what's going on in the mind of a good magician the whole time. It's not just the trick, there are all these other plates that they're spinning, which is a term that they use in the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah. Otherwise
0: and, and and was a common act for these uh for these types of performers. So yeah, that was the scene we wanted to talk about for the prestige. On my end of things, it really uh, the prestige itself is emblematic of how much work you can put into making every single line in every single frame of your movie count towards a payoff that happens in your in your third act throughout it all these things that were mentioned before that were brought up before the uh, the prestige is, is a great example of that and i think this scene itself
1: is the keystone of that entire process for the movie and likewise i found the scene just to be incredibly intriguing on the uh, from the aspect of meta cinema and i know that wasn't something we wanted to fully dive into but the scene And the way that it operates as a perfect example of misdirection in cinema is kind of intrinsically tied to the idea of this movie being about magic and about the act of magic. So it's a point that we can't really go without saying. But the way that the scene is shot is just unique as far as Nolan movies go. It's really interesting watching him operate run and gun. There's very few special features on this Blu-ray, by the way, but you can watch them kind of... Clumsily navigate the camera around this room while they're trying to focus on all the actors, and it is really mm-hmm. interesting perspective to see Nolan operate in those kinds of confines. Um, and once again, I think that all these all this technical jargon just allows us to look at this scene for what it is, which is just kind of perfect exposition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: No, it's a it's really an incredible thing to look at in hindsight and pick apart and see how it works. It, it's very impressive. And with that, that's uh, what we wanted to look at for the prestige today in that scene. If you're on social media and that's how you found us, we'd love to hear on your rewatch, what's a what's a new line that you picked up that you didn't realize meant something that it meant on the watch before? Because that, that seems to happen every time I watch it, and I'm sure it's the same for Tay. Yeah, absolutely. So to wrap up each episode, what we want to do is just give you a recommendation to each of a movie we think you should watch, something we saw recently. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the movie that we're focusing the episode on. Uh, so my recommendation this week is a movie that uh, came out a couple of years ago, but I really haven't heard that much about it. And it came back into the news because of um, the current movie right now, Minari, uh, the Korean-American movie that's uh, making waves with awards. Um, which stars Steven Yeun, as does this movie. The movie's called Burning. Um, it's a mystery drama from 2018, and it's directed by Lee Cheng Dong. Uh, and it was really just a singular experience. This movie has a pace and a an approach that I don't see in a lot of movies. Um, it's, it's long, and it's slow, and it's patient. And I'd highly recommend it. It was really engaging, and it's something I know I'm going to rewatch sometime soon. And maybe we'll, we'll even get an episode on it
1: yeah I still have to check that one out, but i you when you mentioned that to me a couple weeks ago i was I was very intrigued, and I definitely intend to check that one out as well. yeah,
0: it's currently on Netflix. you should definitely everyone should go give it a watch
1: okay, yeah, my recommendation for this week is uh actually the two thousand and seven film Eastern Promises. It's a David Cronenberg film. If you have only seen older David Cronenberg movies, I wouldn't go in with the same level of expectations. Uh, in terms of like what you're going to see but this is a really interesting very intricately violent film in the sense that violence is used very I don't know it poetically and realistically I guess is the best way I can say it and mm-hmm. it started, the film stars Viggo Mortensen who was just a cinematic gem through really the just the early 2000s I guess and uh, yeah. I, Naomi Watts is also in this movie and also I wanted to recommend something Canadian for this week and always good to recommend a Cronenberg mm-hmm. movie You can watch that one on Amazon Prime Premium subscription or pay for it on YouTube or Google Play for about 4 bucks, I think.
0: Always a good call. David Cronenberg is a national treasure, and I would die for him.
1: Mm -hmm. It's the reason we're all here.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) So that has been the first episode of Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay. We really appreciate you tuning in, and we hope you'll come back for another episode. See you next time, movie fans.